I uh, recently heard a story of a, a missionary, and uh, he was evangelizing to a um, remote tribe, and he was teaching them how to play croquet. And uh, I, I don't know if you've ever played croquet or not, but you start on one end with a stake, and you have to go uh, through the wickets and through this course uh, against other people um, that you're, you're playing against. And once you kind of go around to the circle or around the course, you get back to the, to the stake, you win. Well, part of the game is it's kind of savage a little bit. It's kind of cool. Um, you, uh, if you hit the other person's ball, you get an opportunity to take your ball and place it against their ball. You can put your foot on your ball and hit yours as hard as you can and send theirs flying, like as off the course, kind of out of the, out of the way. And so the, the missionary is teaching the tribe this game, and what he notices is that kind of their leader is the best at this game. But as he's going through the, the wickets and going through the course and taking his turns, the missionary notices that the leader is not hitting any of the other balls. And he's kind of like telling him, like, you know, you can hit your ball against their ball and send their ball flying. And you can like win even by a, a bigger margin. Don't, like, why aren't you doing it? And, and the, 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 the leader just kind of ignored him and just kept going. And he eventually won the game. But instead of celebrating what the leader did is he went back to everyone who was still playing the game and he helped them finish the game. And then the last person that hit the stake, after that they all started cheering and clapping for one another. And the missionary said he sat there and just kind of amazement and going, I might have just learned something from them. We're in this series and, and we're talking uh, about anxiety and stress. And I, I'm not talking about necessarily just ways to uh, deal or cope with anxiety and stress. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to address beliefs um, and just maybe ways of being and acting and culture that I think is contributing to our anxiety and stress. Um, we'll, we'll do some of those other things at another time, and we do with our prayer and worship. All of that, by the way, helps. I don't know if you know that or not. So you show all of that helps. And one of the things I want to introduce to you today is this idea that one of the reasons I believe that collectively in our, in our country and in our society that we are dealing with anxiety and stress is partially because we are creating it by the way we live our lives and by the way we think about things. And one of those is, is that we are often only seeking our good and not the good of others. And so what we do is we live in neighborhoods or cultures or society who we don't believe are actually looking out for our good, maybe because we're not looking out for the good of others. And so it's, it's creating this culture of anxiety, because I think we live, and I'm going to introduce this word to you here this morning, I said we're going to do four isms, in a hyper-individualistic age. And so one of the things that I think is kind of hurting us, and that we are struggling with, is hyper-individualism. I, I went ahead and defined it there for you, 
And it's the tendency of people to act in a highly individual way without regard to society or others. Uh, individualism is, is similar, but not the same thing, and it's a habit of principle of being independent or only self-reliant. Now, before I move forward here, I, I want you to know and understand this, that you as an individual, you're important, and so are other people. In fact, we, we get this from the text of the scriptures. In Genesis 1, what we discover is that individual people are important. Uh, Genesis 1, verse 27 for God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What we are discovering here, what you discover both with Adam and Eve and male and female and male kind being created in the image of God is both an idea of function and worth. In other words, what are you, what are you supposed to be? Who are, you, who are you supposed to be? What are you supposed to do? And so your, your relationship to God and other people, what is that supposed to look like? But also your worth. What, what, do, you re, what do you reflect? And what we all reflect is the highest being, the creator of the heavens and the earth. The person that we are worshiping, we are meant to reflect, and we have the ability to reflect the creator, the person who put everything into motion, the beginning and the end, the one who is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, just, merciful, and so forth. Do we share all of those attributes? No. But what the scriptures are doing is it's, it's, it's making a a value statement on you as an individual, an intrinsic value statement that each and every one of you are deeply valued and deeply valuable. But that also means that everyone else is too, that the person sitting beside you is too, that your neighbor is too, that the person living on the other side of the world is as well. And what I want you to know as you look at this is that because you are valuable, treat yourself as such. That, that's okay to do that, like to, to take responsibility for your life. God would want you to do that because he loves you. And, and so don't just think like I can just go on living my life and not take responsibility for me or love myself as well. But that responsibility includes a responsibility to do the same for others. Part of our anxiety, I think, is being perpetuated because we have forgotten the golden rule. Right? To do to others as you'd have them to do to you. The, even the great commandment, which is part of our mission statement, by the way. Uh, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Like you're supposed to love yourself, but you're supposed to love your neighbor the same way. Like their good is caught up in our good, and our good is caught up in their good. And so what I want us to kind of avoid this morning and think about is this kind of just always me over we mindset, or a culture that is always categorizing everything into to winners and losers. Like in games, people have to, people lose. I'm okay, you all know I'm okay with that. I coach football and wrestling, like, and, and I coach, I want to win as bad as anybody. All of that, safetyism, protectionism, that's next week. Um, but we categorize everything into good guys and bad guys, us versus them. And it continues, I think, to create anxiety when we're always competing against other people instead of seeking their good. And what we see in Genesis is that you have Adam and then Eve pops up. Well, what's Eve supposed to be? She's supposed to be a helper. She and Adam are, are put in creation, the world, our lives so that they can help one another, keep and steward the garden. 
Now, we know this doesn't work out really well, so the very next story is really interesting. You have Cain and Abel. You have two brothers by blood, and Cain kills Abel, and then God shows up. <laughs> and God looks at Cain, and he goes, where's Abel? And Cain, it's interesting. His answer is really interesting. He's kind of like brushing God off. He goes, am I my brother's keeper? And if you're a parent, you understand this. It's like immediately it's the side eye from God. Like, what are you talking? Of course you're your brother's keeper. And then what happens is, again, very interesting. We talk about anxiety and lacking peace is that what God does is he casts Cain further east and east all throughout the Bible. What it ends up being is that Cain is getting further and further away from the presence of God. And Cain laments this. And he goes, no, I'm going to be a wanderer for the rest of my life. Like, you can feel the anxiety because he is not going to be in the place that he desired to be with God who was supposed to take care of him and be with him. And so he's cast out of the garden and of this place where God is east of Eden because he didn't live up to his responsibility of being his brother's keeper. Now, most of my teaching this morning is going to come from America's favorite Bible verse. Okay. What is it? Anybody know? I heard it over here. Okay, go ahead, say it. Jeremiah 29 11. That's our favorite Bible verse in this country, right? Go to Hobby Lobby, it's on everything. All the pillows, you know. It's, you can find it at Walmart, I think, right? It's everywhere. And here's what it says here's what it says. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's nice. I mean, it is beautiful. Like, who wouldn't love that? Like, who doesn't, who, who doesn't like to know that God says there's good things to come? It's beautiful, isn't it? I mean, great things are going to happen. Right? Yeah, the world's a mess, whatever. Like, your life is, but great things, great things are coming. Not only that, like, he uses this word, though, welfare, and it's, this is no matter, you're going to see this in different ways all throughout the scripture because it's difficult for us to trans, translate as, as in, into English. And so you'll see that it might see, say peace, it might pr say prosperity, it might say good. And, and so what God is saying is that, hey, all of these things are in your future. And that's a, that's a really good thing to know. And the word used for welfare there, and I'm using the ESV this morning, um, or it might be well-being, is it's shalom. It's shalom. Well, what does shalom mean? Why is it difficult to translate? Because it means total and complete peace on the inside and the outside. Peace, harmony, wholeness, completeness, prosperity, welfare, tranquility, all of that. In other words, the absence of anxiety here will take place according to God. And in their culture... These were both greeting words and parting words. In other words, as people came into your home or as they left their home, you were essentially saying, may, God, may, may it be in your life as God has intended it to be. It's a pretty cool thing. I want to give you, though, some context to this passage. Most of us love Bible passages, but we have no idea what it's actually talking about. That's okay. That's my job. <laughs> I need it, so... <laughs> Hopefully, that can, I don't want that to continue. But what's going on here in Jeremiah is that God is giving Jeremiah a word. 
He's, he's speaking to him, them, him as the prophet, Jeremiah as a prophet, and what, he, what is going on in this chapter is that the people are in a strange place. They're, they're in Babylon. They've been exiled from Israel to Babylon. They're, in fact, um, they've been taken from Israel kind of because of their disobedience. They hadn't been living how God had called them to live. They weren't being the people that God had called them to be, and so what happens is, is basically kind of just natural consequences take place, and Babylon moves in. Well, Babylon, what they did when they conquered people, they would move people and kind of transplant people um, into the Babylonian cities and so forth to try to assimilate them into uh, their own culture and so forth. Although the Babylonians, from what I understand, were uh, fairly open to you basically kind of keeping your religion if you wanted to, your practices, your customs, and all of those sorts of things, but they would transplant you into their places. And so that's what's going on. And so what you have is you have the people of God, people who have committed to follow God, theoretically, and they're in a place of strange customs, uh, around strange people, around strange uh, religious practices, sex pra sexual practices, languages, all of that. And so there's been this massive change in their life. And for us, just looking at this and just thinking about our own lives, whenever there's change, we grow anxious. Like, it's just, it's just part of it. Most of us we, we, we don't like change. We react in a certain way to change, and it, and it makes us anxious. And it's okay just to name that. Like when you say, see things that are changing or going on or whatever, to say, hey, that, that makes me anxious. And their world changed really quickly. Like their lives changed really quickly. And one thing that is true about our world, it is changing at a very rapid pace, which, which makes it difficult to navigate. Uh, political scientist Randall uh, Swaler uh, says this, I mean, he speaks about this really simply, and he, he says this, he points this out. He says, the world is undergoing a transformation, a chaotic period where most anything can happen and little can be predicted, where yesterday's rule takers become tomorrow's rule makers, but no one follows rules anymore, where competing global visions collide with each other, where remnants of the past, the present, the future coexist simultaneously. So in other words, like we're going through this age and this time where there are rapid changes. And what it does is it causes things to feel or to be unstable, which causes anxiety in our lives. And so if you're feeling that, I just want to tell you, you're not crazy. You're not crazy. Now, what's interesting are some of the things that I've been reading and trying to figure out, like, where are we at, though? Uh, Mark Sayers, in his book, um, A Non-Anxious Presence, and he's writing primarily to leaders, what he believes that culturally and society and globally is that we're in this gray zone. And so we don't really know where we're at right now. Like we're trying to figure out, which again makes it kind of unstable. And so what he is recommending in his book is that for you leaders, and I, I believe I'm speaking to a lot of leaders in here and future leaders in our church, your job is to be like Moses when people are in the desert, it, it is to lead them out, but, but not with fear, uh, but believing that, that God is with you and among you and that we need leaders to stabilize ourselves and the other people around us in a time like this. So that might be a challenge to some of you leaders. Now, Jeremiah 29, I think, here gives us, gives us some things to think about and to apply to our lives, some guidance that both honors the individual here but also helps us to think about in the midst of all this, how do we seek the good of the people around us? Maybe even some of them that we believe is causing the destabilization around us. And so here it is. This is God's advice for Jeremiah and the people that are experiencing what I just described to you. This is, I'm going to begin in verse 6. 
in chapter 29, or beginning in verse 4 and read through 6 here in chapter 29. We're going to keep going this morning. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. So God is speaking through Jeremiah here to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there. Do not decrease. So what is it you th- do I think God has for us here? And it's, it's very simple. It's this. In the midst of everything that's going on in your life or any type of, type of instability, here's what you need to do. You need to keep living. Keep living. Build a life. Have a positive vision for your life and seek it. Seek the, seek the most good you can for your life and others. Look what he says here. He says, build a house. Like, settle in. Settle in. Plant gardens. Pursue meaningful work. Like, don't, don't just sit in your anxiety and sit in your fear and watch your life disappear. Like, keep going. Just because things are changing or it might be weird or what you don't understand them or whatever it might be, that doesn't mean that you can just sit still and let life pass you by and not live it. He, he didn't say, now that you're in Babylon, it, it's all over. Just, just quit. Now that you're by those weird and strange people or that things are going on that you don't understand, to give up. Think about the life that you want to live. Think about the good that you want to create for others. He says that take wives. Don't actually take them, woo them. Um, you get in trouble for that now. Uh, <laughs> rightfully so. It's interesting. I was talking to my buddy the other day, Josh, and I, I, I said, now when I think about dating and stuff like this, I used to like beg my students and like teach them and just everybody else, like, don't go to third base too early. Like, please, don't, don't, don't go home, brother, sister. But I, I, it's, it's interesting, though, now, and I still believe that, by the way, okay? Still believe it. Follow the Lord in all your relationships. But now I find myself thinking, like, how do I get people to step up to the plate? How, how do I get people just to swing? Try to meet other people. Try, ask somebody on a date. Like, go out. If you find the person, then ask them to marry you. I know that sounds crazy, but, but it's a good thing. It, it's, it's a, don't be afraid of that. And then, then, then like young people, if you want to have kids, which I encourage, they're crazy. They'll make your life both, it'll be the worst thing and the best thing you've ever done. I promise you. <laughs> but do it. Like have kids. You you don't have to have the massive house to have kids. They don't care. I got to be honest. Like, they, they, they don't care. But don't let your life pass you by and wish, like, I, I wish I would have done that. But I was too afraid because I either didn't have enough money, I didn't have a big enough house, or I think that the world is going to end because everything is going to whatever. Live your life. It's okay to do that. I, I can't promise you, by the way. I cannot promise you that things are going to go perfectly. 
not going to be massive work. All the, I have no idea. But live your life. Uh, I want you to, I mean, you can close your eyes if you want. But I just want to ask you, what, what is God calling you to? I mean, who does he want you to be? What does he want you to accomplish? Who does he want you to do it with? Look at your family, your friends, your faith community. Think about them five years from now. What's that look like? Pursue it. What do you look like? Pursue that person. And, and I don't know, maybe some of you say, well, Josh, I'm too old for that, or so much has passed. No, you're not. I, I don't care how old you are or how young you are. Live your life. Live it. Help the rest of us out. I honestly be believe that I will benefit from your success. I, I will benefit from you doing what God has called you to do. I believe that which is this next thing I, I want to share with you and I, and I want to ask you to do. Uh, and something I think we need to think really hard about is you need to seek the well-being of everyone as you think about that. You need to seek the well-being of everyone. Verse 7 here. So seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you in exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now, it's clear here that as we think about what God wants to do in our life and through us, that we aren't just to uh, think about ourselves. What's also I find really interesting here is that this is the second time that God tells them that he is the one who sent them into exile. In other words, it's not an accident. They're not where they're at by accident. God had a hand in it. In Acts, Paul shows up to Athens, and what he says this, he says, from man, God created all nations through the whole earth. He decided beforehand that they should, where they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. And then his purpose was that the nations would seek after God wherever they are at. And so, in other words, wherever you live, you are to live there with and on purpose, to seek after the welfare of the city, and to, to pray to God on its behalf. This has always been God's plan. This is God's original plan. If you go back to Genesis 12, what we see is that God plans to make his name famous in this way. That's how he's organizing it. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, this is God's promise to Abraham and call on Abraham's life. And the Lord God said to Abraham, go from your country and your people and your father's household and the land I will show you and I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you a blessing. Now check this out. All peoples on earth will be blessed by who? Through you. Our calling is to bless others. The Israelites here could have been in Babylon, and what they could have just basically said is, I'm going to stay away. Like, we're going to do our own thing over here by ourselves. We don't care what happens to these other people. We're not going to trade with them. We're not going to talk with them. We're not going to seek their good. We're not going to care about them. And maybe God will just show up and smite them all. No. God tells them, engage. You know, not only is individualism, I think, a part of some of the things that are making us anxious, but, but tribalism is. Okay, I've convinced y'all, or we've been convinced now, hey, we do need other people, but, but now we're just going to kind of get into our holy huddles or whatever they might be, and we're going to look at everybody else and think that they're enemies, and we're not going to contribute in any positive way whatsoever to their lives. But 
watch what God says here in verse 7. He says, in you pursuing good for other people, he said that's actually where you're going to find your well-being. In other words, the good that you want to experience is caught up in the good that you create for others. And so it's not just one or the other. And, and we see this in, in, in small relationships, and we should, and the Bible talks about these. I mean, this is true for everyone. Uh, my best friends, I know, are the ones who actually want good for me, who don't just care about themselves, who, who call me not when they just need something or want something, but who ask about me, who do things for me. Your marriages work like that. I tell people all the time. One of the, I, I mean, I knew, I told you, if, if you've heard our story, I told Mary, Emily I was going to marry her the, the first time I kind of talked to her about dating um, before we, she, she still had a boyfriend. Um, <laughs> As a story for another time. <laughs> but when I, I brought her up uh, a couple of months later to meet my family, and we're, we're playing a card game, and I'm, I'm pretty competitive, and I'm playing, and, and it was one of those card games you kind of knew what people needed to potentially win, and she laid down the card that she knew I needed to win. I don't know if she just didn't like my brother and wanted to keep him from winning or what it was, but I remember taking the card, putting it down, and I'm like, why would you do that? You know that just ended the game. And she looked at me, and she goes, we're on the team. Okay, you're getting a ring. Um, you know, but at, at, at some point, right, at, at some point, right, during our marriages, often it feels like we're no longer on a team. You start doing what's best for you, right? And what happens? Your marriage begins to dissolve. You're, you're, Christians, we're called to take care of our aging parents. It's, it's, we're actually told we're worse than unbelievers if we don't. And we're just like everybody else if we don't. There's, there's this care for others that is built into our faith and believing that we need others and seeking people to be on our team and inviting people to be on our team. Now, the difficult part is, is when that people don't seem like they want to be on our team or should be on our team. And the truth is, is there's unreconcilable differences sometimes between you and other people, or even between Christianity and other worldviews. But one of the things that we need to be careful about is not to create those unnecessarily. I mean, there are all sorts of reasons that we have felt we needed to divide or have divided. Ethnicity, race, age, strongly held identities, uh, socioeconomic statuses, education. I mean, re religious reasons, right? All of those. And I'm, I'm not telling you that I'm going to bridge every divide, be able to bridge every divide, or that we need to smooth everything out all the time. But what we certainly are called to do is to seek the good of our neighbor and even learn from them when appropriate. Right? We need to be creative in the way we do it. You are created in the image of God. Well, we're told that right after God just creates everything. God is an extremely creative God. And so we need to think about creative ways and bringing people together. Finding good. And people are like, where, where does that even come from? I mean, that's, that's part of the story of the great Good Samaritan. It's being surprised that the Samaritan is better than the Jewish leaders, than the religious leaders. MLK put it like this, that the, the Jewish leaders walked by and they thought about, okay, if I help that person, what will happen to me? The Samaritan walked by and said, if I don't help that person, what will happen to them? Right? So we need to be careful not to just create enemies. 
which is my last point here, is don't listen to people who tell you to look out for yourself and your tribe only. Just don't listen to them. Check this out, verses 8 and 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners, diviners, excuse me, who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Now, what's interesting here is we don't know exactly what these prophets are saying. We're not 100% sure when you read through the text. But we can be pretty confident that what they're telling the people is that exile is, is not going to be long, that we're going to go back soon. It, it, they're, they're, they're probably speaking an amount of, of, of judgment on others uh, pretty quickly, and that God is going to come down, he's going to remove us, and we're going to get to go back. Um, that's, that's probably what's going on. And I don't know who these people are for you and for me. Uh, but if, if you are looking at other people that are different than you and what you're doing um, by listening to some modern-day prophets or political commentators or whatever it might be and are teaching you constantly to fear, to hate, to demonize, right, I think that's who fits into this category right here. Right? People who are telling you that not only are those people wrong, but we don't want good for them. I'm not telling you that you shouldn't know, that you should call good evil and evil good. No, not at all. Hopefully you'll never hear me say that, those sorts of things. While at the same time, we must be careful never to do things or push people away because we hate them, we're primarily afraid of them, or we just want to demonize them. I love reading biographies. I love reading history. I've recently picked up um, a biography of uh, MLK. Again, I've read it before, um, but it reminds me of just really how great of a leader he was and what he was able to do. Um, and one of the interesting things for him, and you all know, I kind of lived for Birmingham, in Birmingham for a while where uh, some of the most um, brutal uh, persecution was, took place against him. Um, but when you read his sermons, what you discover is that every time that he is speaking to the people that he is leading, he always tells them this, is that we are going to love the white man. I mean, think about this. These, a lot of, these are the people that are harming him. Whenever he talked about humanity and other people around him, his neighbor, he referred to them as family, brothers, and sisters. He always told his followers his goal for them was never to harm and always to help. It was never retribution. It was always redemption and reconciliation. It was never to destroy. It was always to repair and unite. And he believed if you read through his sermons and you read what he had to say, you don't even have to think he's right about everything here. But what he believed is that peace and prosperity was always bound, or bound up in the mutual well-being of each person. And I think we, in this time, if we're going to change the spirit of even our age, that's the kind of spirit and that's the type of person that we need to become. I mean, check this out here in verse 10. We're almost to verse 11. It says, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill my promise to you and bring you back to this place. Now, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, it's, it's interesting. Uh, what God is setting up here, he's, he's both setting up um, the idea that there will be punishment for Babylon, but there's also a promise. Babylon isn't, isn't going to continue. 
the things that they're doing, like, I see it is what God is saying. It's not going to last forever. But he's also telling them here that you're going to belong in this space for a while. He says, you're going to be there for 70 years. Think about that for a second. About how long is 70 years? It's about a lifetime. It's about a lifetime. So what if I told you that things might feel strange in your life for a lifetime? For a lifetime. That, that you might struggle with anxiety here and there for a lifetime. But that God, in that lifetime, is calling you to commit to living a life of blessing others and doing good for others for a lifetime for a lifetime before we get to verse 11 I want us to see here that our favorite verse that speaks about peace harmony wholeness completeness prosperity welfare tranquility all of that the absence of anxiety all of that is dependent their future is dependent on them committing to God's call in their life for a lifetime of seeking the greatest amount of good for the people around them. This is what God says. So if you do that, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's a good word. That's a good word from God. Now, I want to transition here. I'm not going to want. That's what we're going to do. Um, we're going to transition to communion. And communion is a great time to think about this, about how can we do good for others. Uh, Jesus himself was an individual who came and did for what we couldn't do as individuals for ourselves. He came and lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died. And then he went to the grave and he rose from the grave, promising eternal life to us, giving us life, something that we are not able to create for ourselves. And so we come to the table this morning, and we come to take communion, thinking about somebody who came to do good for us and promised that we do have a future, that we do have a hope, that he can that your welfare is secure. So here's how we're going to do this. We ask that uh, everybody, if you're new with us this morning, will go through these aisles here. If you're on these aisles, you'll, you'll come here. Wait, no second. Sorry. Opposite way. Come down the center aisle here and here. You'll come here and you'll go back up through those aisles. And the outside aisles, you go this way and go back to the same aisles. Does that make sense? Okay. Good. Thank you. I like you. All right, you're talking to me here. Right. Let's pray and come to the table. Father, we, we come to you, and uh, we thank you because you are good. You're kind to us even when we aren't kind to you. You're good to us even when we aren't good to you. You're faithful even when we aren't faithful, Father. And we pray, I pray, Father, that we become the type of people who love other people, um, that we do seek their good, that, that we see that when we do good to others and seek the good, to, good, the good of others, that our good is wrapped up in their good. Help us to navigate what that looks like. Um, we don't always know. 
what that looks like for others. Father, but we believe by your help, you can take some complex ideas. You can help us to be creative uh, and, and sometimes living in a world or a time uh, that makes us anxious and um, where we're trying to figure out how do we create the most good and be the most good to those around us. For those who are here this morning and maybe they're thinking about following Jesus, I pray that you would call them to yourself. I pray that they would have seen and experienced the good God this morning. I pray that they would understand that we don't believe that we are necessarily or inherently good in ourselves, but we believe that you are good and a good God came and died for our sins and can make us good and righteous as we follow him and believe that our life is in him. So, Father, I invite people into that life. May you give us all grace this morning as we come to the table, and may we give each other grace as well. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.